1: We've got a great show for you today, let's please give a warm round of applause to our three readers.
2: So, Lori Ochoa is here, that's Jonathan's wife and also the co-founder of Slate.
3: culture editor at LA We Commerce. drove down from Comic-Con just now. So,
2: yeah. And uh, thank you all for being here just uh, remind you that there is coffee whiskey, and cookies up here and uh, please help yourself at any time we like to we like to, Slake has a tradition of, of having the rowdiest readings um, that you could possibly imagine this seems a little sedate right now, so <laughs> I want everyone to get jacked up and have a good time you know this isn't this isn't a huffy puffy stuffy New York reading this is l a style so you know Help yourself. Uh, I
3: just want to thank Tyson Cornell for yeah. you know getting the band back together for this afternoon. Um, and also we've got some other Slake contributors here. And babies have been born since the last Slake, and uh, uh, jobs have been had and lost, and uh, it's been it's been good. So actually, uh,
2: some babies were born because of Slake. That's, that's yeah. right. we have
3: Slake babies. Yeah, we have that's- Slake
2: babies. They're not here right now, but the- anyway, that's Tyson in the back there with the hat on. He's the one who uh, brought the whiskey. It's stri- he chose, he straight chose from the, his bottom shelf, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs>
3: and he chose some of the uh, pieces from the four issues of Slake, so we're very grateful. Thank you, Tyson.
2: Yeah. I'd, yeah, I'd just like to say thank you to Tyson and Rare Bird Lit. If you don't know about Rare Bird Lit, it's an amazing local uh, publishing house that Tyson uh, started several years ago, and against uh, great odds is really uh, having a, uh, not just a local, but a, a national impact. With some great work, and uh, we were very honored that um, he he approached us about putting together this great collection to uh, to, as I think I just so so that Slake's IBM number would have somewhere to go uh, and live eternally in the Library of Congress. So uh, there it is, and, and um, these were uh, this was a rare bird lit production, and. Uh, um, we thank Tyson and, and them for doing this, so thank you. So, first up is uh, John Albert, whom, as you know, was uh, founding... You're not going to do it? Uh, Luke, will you do it? Come, no, come on, Luke. Come on. Can we do it, too? We, you know, we have another Pulitzer Prize winner. He just happens to be a Pulitzer Prize winner from Australia. He's a poet laureate of Australia. And if you clap loud enough, maybe he will come out and read a poem.
4: Luke Luke, Luke! 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 This is Luke Davies. So, uh, thanks, John. That's just really embarrassing on every level that I can possibly experience it. Um, so I'm just going to read an uh, extract from a poem that was published in one of the issues of Slake. In the fashion show. Come on. Which is from, um, a book of mine called Interferon Psalms, which, won, which, yes, won the Prime Minister's Literary Award in Australia, not the, uh, it's not, whatever, it's not. <laughs> uh,
2: I meant the Prime Ministers. Uh,
4: yeah. Uh, so here's a small extract from Interferon Psalms. The old, the old geologies will disappear as the mountains erode, one pebble, one day, one freeze-thaw cycle at a time. Doesn't it all end up as limestone? I had had no idea how slow, slow really was, since I was far more familiar with panic. In a Copenhagen summer long ago, she had said, the day just passes so fast. Myself, I was thinking, life. The uplifts will pulverize to trace minerals one day. The nutrients will nourish the new world. I was preoccupied, emerging into the interglacial from the glaciation of my distress. The present could turn so busy, I'd wake each morning, my blood mid-percolate, the day's hair triggers of desire and chaos hovering as always, yet unborn, and some days it's all radio K-fuck blaring inside me, so I turn down the dial on that one, O God of hosts. And the red-crowned cranes float down through the menace. The world will be silent for thousands of years. The panthers and jaguars came in from the jungle. They prowled the bollards where the ships once waited, all buckled concrete and thistles now. When the sluices have silted and the rain broken through, the rain catch holes will disappear. The world will be silent for thousands of years. I thought sadness was the route to forgetting, but months later anger was like a detour, and the smog settled on the city and made the dusk a glory. So I praised Yahweh, saying, holy one of being, I am yours and my dreams are yours. All that remained was to get to the gym, I did nothing for ages. I was trying to imitate the large-scale structures of being. But, superclusters aside, I was generally part of the problem, not the solution. What else was there but versions of sugar? There were other things I know, I knew. But I was wandering in circles on an ice floe. for all I knew. A bag of sugar to keep me distracted and warm. There were other things, but I couldn't be everywhere at once. Purple asters split the pavement, sun bleak, loneliness of forms, I reveled in the solitudes. The petrochemical dodecahedrons which filled the air and rendered so pretty the dusks were pressed to the asphalt by the first rain in months. Thousands of years later they were well and truly absorbed into the soil, one might even say dispersed. I had had unfinished business in other combinations of molecules. It all came out in the wash. My blood was crawling with messianic impropriety. I was a plasma-electric hybrid. It gave me more staying power through the galaxy of my auto-disdain, or love, I forget which, or loves. My heart was hot within me while I was musing. The fire burned. It was a pleasure doing business with my doubt. I was so satisfied with my eternal present. I had long since forgotten what hope was, but in a good way. Thanks.
2: So, um, Luke has an amazing piece in the best of, it's called Cisco Kid, and it's about the great Chris Christofferson movie, Cisco Pike, and uh, how that relates to uh, a boy growing up in Australia dreaming of Los Angeles. I highly recommend it. Um, also, I, I think his his, uh, his novel, God of Speed, has just been optioned, is that right, Luke? Uh, no,
4: it's coming out with uh, Rare Bird.
2: It's coming out, oh, it's coming out. It's coming out with Rare Bird, All right, yeah, and um, Also, the novel Candy, which was... uh, Oh, yeah,
4: September 11th, Book Soup, launch. For what? God of Speed.
2: September 11th, Book Soup, launch. God of Speed. (laughs) And I also want to mention the other Slate contributor back here, Sam Slavik. uh, He has a great piece uh, called um, Big Tent Theory, which uh, is about... Uh, in part about the two years he spent with the Occupy Movement, and he's just finishing up a documentary that will uh, be out soon that uh, details his incredible experiences, uh, two years living on the streets with uh, the Occupy Movement. So Sam, hey, there's Sam back there. Uh Um, And next up we have uh, John Albert. Uh, John is... uh, uh, probably a familiar writer to uh, a lot of you Angelinos, He's written for um, uh, every place that there is worth writing about, and he's uh, truly one of one of my favorite writers. Uh, his memoir *Wrecking Crew*, uh, which uh, came out uh, several years ago, was uh, was uh, on its way to being made into a film when, unfortunately, uh, one of the uh, it stars uh, in, intended stars Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, uh, met an uh, unfortunate too early demise, but uh, John is uh, John is written for a number of anthologies and for a number of magazines, and uh, he's uh, he he captures Los Angeles uh, in a way that I think is essential uh, to the city's letters and also has been an essential part of Slake. So here's John Albert.
5: I wanna- Thank Luke for doing that, as mad as he was for us throwing him up here. Um, I want to say, you know, when Joe um, sold his house many years ago, he said, um, he asked me, we were walking through Elysian Park, and he said, well, I could invest my money, I could buy another house, or I could start a literary anthology. And I said, well, you're probably going to go broke anyway, so just do the literary anthology. And it is what it is. <laughs> um, anyways, thanks, Joe. It's been a good effort. And and one of the things I, I'd say about this is, like, a lot of, it's brought a, a sort of a sense of community. I mean, a lot of, like, I know Luke. We all know one another. And it's it's been really nice. Um, and I, I love a lot of the stories in this. Um, my story is, is about, sort of about the band Van Halen, but it's not. It's about Los Angeles and growing up in Los Angeles. And one of the things I always think is like that music is sort of more about a time and a place and a context. And like, you know, whether you like the Beach Boys, they sort of show, um, you know, the changing sort of culture of Los Angeles. And Van Halen did that as well. in a particular time that I was growing up, which was they like sort of captured this suburban rock scene and as it ended um, and trans, you know, sort of became like punk rock and then a whole nother thing. So anyways, uh, I would talk to Joe about Van Halen and he said write something about it. And um, it doesn't mean I'm a huge Van Halen fan, although I like them a lot, um, but you know, it's, it's about something else, so I'll just read it. Um, and this is my son here, can you hold him up? So, if, if I suck, he's still, he's still pretty great. Um, and, he, and he can make noise during when I'm reading, it's fine. Um, okay, the first time I hear Van Halen, I'm 14 years old, riding in a, in a car through the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. My friend Steve Darrow is riding shotgun while his dad steers the dusty old Volvo station wagon. Chris Darrow is in his 40s and has long hair and a slightly drooping cowboy mustache. In the 60s and early 70s, as a member of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and an obscure but influential group called Kaleidoscope, he, along with Graham Parsons, Linda Ronstadt and others, forged what became the classic California sound. His long-haired, black Sabbath-loving son, Steve, would go on to play in an early version of Guns N' Roses. But on this particular night, Chris is driving us and another friend home from a party thrown by a local ceramic artist. While the aging hippies and college professors sipped wine and purchased meticulously decorated casserole plates, my friends and I hiked into a nearby orange grove to smoke pot in the moonlight. As the car heads home along Baseline Boulevard, passing the silhouettes of orange groves and vineyards, the three of us are still incredibly stoned and no one is talking. Someone turns on the radio. It's tuned to K-Rock, a small independent station that has little in common with the corporate behemoth it would become. In 1978, the station broadcast a strange mix of surreal sketch comedy and new music across the Southland. A show called The Hollywood Night Shit riffs on barbecue, bat burgers, and downhill screen door races. Meanwhile, the station's present-day last man standing, Rodney Bingenheimer, who today's morning goons Kevin and Bean use as a prop for their moronic shtick, sh- moronic introduced punk music to kids across Southern California. By this time, my friends and I have already fallen under the sway of raw new sounds emerging from a ripped and torn safety pin adorned England. As we cruise along baseline, I have no idea what's on the radio. I stare out the window into the passing darkness with a hazy, Mexican weed-induced tunnel vision. Then, suddenly, this extraordinary sound from the car stereo snaps me back. Steve reaches over and turns up the volume. It's guitar playing, but not like anything we had heard before. Until this very moment, the reigning guitar heroes had been English amateur warlocks, such as Jimmy Page and Richie Blackmore playing sped up bastardized versions of the American blues, but this is faster and weirder. Toward the one-minute mark, the playing veers into a completely uncharted territory, and the final 42 seconds sound like gypsy jazz legend Django Reinhardt on CIA Acid. It is a style of playing that will so dramatically alter the musical landscape that 30 years later it will sound normal, even rote. But in 1978, this burst of unabashed virtuosity and noise, something we'll later learn is appropriately called eruption, earns unexpected respect from three punk rock children and one middle-aged country rock musician. As the whole thing reaches a frenzied crescendo of undulating distortion, the four of us start to laugh. Until that is, the distortion immediately segs into a revamped version of the King's classic, You Really Got Me, rumbling through the car's little speakers. This is not hard rock as we know it. No high-pitched operatic wailing about sorcery and Viking lore. With no visual reference to go on, it seems as if to have as much in common with early punk as bands such as Led Zeppelin and Rush, except, of course, for the crazy outer space guitar solo. In retrospect, retrospect, this makes perfect sense. Before it became one of the biggest bands in the world, Van Halen routinely played on bills with pre-punk bands like The Runaways, The Mumps, and The Dogs. When the song ends, Steve's dad, who may or may not have been stoned as well, just nods his head and says, Far out. It is a soundtrack to a world that doesn't exist anymore. I know because it is a world where I come from. Van Halen had been playing the suburbs east of Los Angeles for several years before we heard them on that radio that night. In fact, the previous year, Peter's diminutive science teacher mom, who, when speaking, tended to coo pleasantly like a pigeon, unwittingly supplied Van Halen with several bottles of bourbon and tequila. The occasion was the band's appearance at a show on the local radio college radio station hosted by Peter's older but still underage brother and some of his friends. Following 70s rock etiquette, they felt it only proper to provide the band with alcohol and other recreational substances. I remember this because my friends and I had been coerced into distributing flyers announcing the band's appearance on the show. Most of our peers glanced at the crudely rendered image of a young David Lee Roth flaunting his soon-to-be legendary chest pelt and bulging package and simply tossed the flyers away. A lot of those same kids would, several years later, pay large sums of money to see the band headline the massive forum in Inglewood. In the years leading up to the record deal and worldwide fame, the internet was still science fiction and the only video game widely available, Pong, mimicked the ping pong only without the riveting excitement and health benefits. (laughs) As a result, kids were primarily focused on two things, rock music and getting wasted. Days were spent in under the sun and smog, getting high, playing sports, skateboarding in empty swimming pools, while weekend nights were devoted almost entirely to massive backyard parties. And Van Halen ruled the backyard party scene in and around the San Gabriel Valley. And I'm going to skip way ahead. Um, (coughs) Let's see. Joe? How long should we read for? Oh. All right. I'll I'll just. I tend to read fast. My wife says read slower. but... um, Should you keep going? No. Yeah. I'll just read a little more. Okay. Two years after hearing Van Halen on the car radio, the world around me seems a dramatically different place. My once long hair is now short and jagged, and I'm wearing a studded wristband with a spider shaped earring punched through an infected hole in my ear. In the suburbs across Southern California, punk rockers have swelled from besieged minority to an increasingly aggressive subculture. There are pervasive hostilities between the heavy metal loving stoners and the new punks. Both sides instigate, instigate violence. By now, I've been expelled from school for truancy and I'm enrolled in something called Claremont Collegiate Academy. Despite its snooty name, it's a place filled with kids who have failed at the local high schools. My classmates are mainly long-haired drug users, agitated Iranian immigrants, and kids with assorted behavioral disorders. The principal will eventually be arrested on child porn charges. (laughs) That's true. Uh, During one lunch break, I stroll into the school parking lot and and am greeted by the pounding tribal drums of Van Halen's latest single, Everybody Wants Some, blasting from the open doors of a huge four-wheel drive truck. Two very attractive teenage girls stand on the truck's roof, dancing to the music. Both are outfitted in tight, shimmering spandex pants, halter tops, and moon boots. They bump their perfectly shaped asses together and sing along with David Lee Roth. Everybody wants some. I want some too. Everybody wants some. How about you? As I walk by, a girl with feathered blonde hair points down at me and sneers, seductively singing. Everybody wants some, baby. How about you? I do. (laughs) A week later, I end up ditching school with the monster truck's down jacket wearing owner and the two girls. We drive into the nearby mountains and sip Southern Comfort and smoke pot. The girls tell me that Van Halen singer David Lee Roth is a super fox and they desperately want to fuck him. I'm sorry, son. Um, on the drive home, I'm in the truck's back seat making out with the blonde girl. Her lips gloss taste like raspberry candy. I caress her nipples through her shirt and eventually slip a finger between her legs, which seems like a monumental achievement. I stop when I realize she has fallen asleep. <laughs> It's not my fault. Um, a few days later, she pulls me into an un- unoccupied dark room between classes, and we fondle one another f- again. After several more be- brief flirtations, we pull the pull of our opposing camps is just too much, and we eventually stop talking. A, le- a year later, I run into her at a local hamburger stand where she works behind the counter. She hands me my food and waves me off before I can pay. And. Several years back, I caught Van Halen's show at the gleaming new Staples Center in downtown LA anticipating a heartfelt homecoming. Instead, I get a slick, entertaining, professional rock show. There are no missteps, but little, if anything, seems spontaneous. Then leading into the song, Ice Cream Man, Roth stops and delivers a monologue. I later learned from watching videos online that it's pretty much the same speech in every city. Still, it has a particular significance in Los Angeles, mere miles from where it started. The suburbs I come from, The suburbs, Ross says to a cheering crowd, you know where they tear out the trees and name streets after them. I live on Orange Grove. There's no Orange Grove there, it's just me. In fact, most of us in the band come from the suburbs, and we used to play the backyard parties there. I remember it was like yesterday. Not long ago, I'm at my parents' house in those very suburbs, visiting my dad, who is slowly dying, his body wasting away. After leaving his house, I stop for gas. As I stand at the pump, a tall, disheveled man approaches me. He begins to ask for spare change, then stops and stares at me. After a moment, he says my name. I look back blankly and he awkwardly introduces himself. It turns out that we grew up together. The once handsome and talented athlete had been drinking hard and using cocaine and his life had unraveled in dramatic fashion. The last I'd heard, he was living behind a local bar in an abandoned camper shell but was asked to leave for having too many guests and making too much noise. I asked how he is, and he just shakes his head. I take out my wallet and offer a 20, which he refuses. I, in- I insist, and he eventually palms the bill and slides it into a pocket. After some strange small talk, he asks him for a ride to a friend's apartment, and I reluctantly agree. The two of us drive through the streets of our shared childhood in awkward silence. The orange groves have long since turned into a sprawl of tract housing and circuitous dead ends, both literal and figurative. I turn on the radio and scan stations and eventually stop on Van Halen's classic Ain't Talking About Love. I turn up the volume. After a few seconds, the propulsive guitar fades and David Lee Roth begins to talk. I've been to the edge and I've stood and looked down, You know, I lost a lot of friends there. I got no time to mess around. The music builds in intensity before exploding into a powerful, defiant co- chorus. He ain't talking about love. My love is rotten to the core. I told you before, hey, hey, hey. By this time, my old friend is singing along and pumping his fist in the air. His eyes are moist from either alcohol, sadness, or both. The song finishes just as we pull in front of a dilapidated apartment complex, and he climbs out. He hesitates and looks in at me. Hey man, remember those crazy parties back in the day? I nod and force a smile. Those were some good fucking times, he says, reaching into slapping my shoulder affectionately before disappearing into the darkness. And that's it. Thanks, Joe.
3: I love that piece Um, and that's John's piece is one of the reasons we did Slate because there's so many different ways to tell stories about Los Angeles and of course uh, telling stories through food is one of the ways Jonathan Gold does that um, and uh, Jonathan and I have been talking a lot recently about um, you know the ways the fabric of the city is held together by food? It's kind of the eternal theme in a lot of his pieces, and we've been wandering around the Grand Central Market for the past several months and just watching the changes there. And it's kind of like this distillation of um, everything he's been writing about um, in the way neighborhoods change and. Um, one of the, the piece he's going to read is not from um, Slake, but a piece that kind of represents another way of talking about Los Angeles and a moment when um, the fabric of the city kind of looked like it wasn't going to hold. So, Jonathan.
0: Uh, yeah, I was going to read a piece about a prawn, but... Uh, <laughs> Laurie wouldn't let me. It was really quite a good piece about a prawn, too, but you'll hear it some other time. It was alive. Then, then I ate it. <laughs> uh, but th- this, is, uh, this is an older essay, written uh, the, the week after the, um, the riots in 1992. And I'll I'll, I'll read it, you can can hear. Um, I can't tell you how much I love Los Angeles. It is 8 o'clock and the light has started to fade as I sit on the floor of my apartment, staring at the spot where the rain not so much dripped as oozed from the door jamb a couple months ago swelling the wood and leaving a rust-yellow stain on the wall. Downstairs, a baby cries out in Spanish. In the distance, the ghetto boys boom from a passing truck. For the fifth time in about an hour, I think about the other parts of town, the ones with croissant shops on the street corners and air-conditioned shopping malls and and neighbors who look like me. I put on the new DJ Quick tape and crank up the juice. For the last decade or so, I have le- lived in a creaking apartment, probably swank in its day, that has been home to a dog trainer, a fiddle player, and a series of writers in a smartly column building in an aging neighborhood nobody has yet bothered to name. The runner on the front stairway was tacked down in May 1926, the date of the newspapers used as padding under the indeterminately colored rug. Before the fires of April, there were 14 different kinds of ethnic restaurants within a five-minute walk. Now there are just 10. For a while, everything in the neighborhood seemed just a little more ominous. The Saturday night gunshots a little louder, the omnipresent sirens and helicopters a little closer to home. When you spend some time in my neighborhood, you learn the rhythm of the place. The mornings when the Mexican's fruit truck shows up on the corner, the hour when Filipino teenagers snack on liver buns and coca-cola at the pancit shop, the peaceful time in late afternoon when the avenue flows majestically as a great, slow river of cars. Mid-afternoon on Fridays, traffic slows to a halt as pious Muslims pour out of the local mosque. Sundays, it slows for worshipers exiting the Korean Philadelphia Presbyterian Church, which is housed in an enormous one-time synagogue where a friend of mine was bar mitzvahed many years ago. Guatemalan women walk home from Ralph's with bags of groceries balanced expertly on their heads. Salvadoran construction workers crowd into the local Korean noodle shop for steamed dumplings. On the first Tuesday in November, One might vote in a Japanese travel agency, in Islamic meeting hall, or Armenian carpet store. The first warm day of spring is greeted by the jingle bells of the palata man who trudges up and down the block behind carts full of delicious fruit popsicles pursued by children. With summer, iced coconuts appear, which are sold out of the backs of trucks by laughing men who whack the fruit open with long machetes. You sip at the liquid with long straws and later gouge out strips of the sweet gelatinous meat. In this neighborhood, most of us are just passing through, transients on our way to more permanent homes in Long Beach or Huntington Park. We are all citizens of the world. We are all strangers together. But to my Korean landlords, this neighborhood is home. When they came into my apartment a couple of years ago to inspect the building they had just bought, they removed their shoes on the landing in the polite Korean manner and promptly drenched their socks on the freshly mopped kitchen floor. I have been awakened before dawn by the rhythmic thud of their pounding garlic into paste on the back porch. I have stumbled out the door with an armful of wet laundry only to find all of the clotheslines taken up by drying fish. I have also come home from work to find the back stairs spread with leaves of cabbage curing in the hot sun. Even when their sun was shod a half mile south of here, there was no questioning of their sense of place. The landlords keep to themselves, and so do I. I often wish that they would invite me over for dinner. Thanks.
2: Thank you, Jonathan. So if you can't pick up all four issues of Slake, and I know you can't because there's only two of the issues here, I think, there's only issue three and issue four left, maybe one issue two, pick this up. It's great summer reading. You still got a little bit of summer to enjoy, and uh, it's handy. It's portable. It's better than carrying four books around. You know, so, you know it's a great summer read right there. So, um, the uh, the the authors will be available uh, afterward to take your questions if you have some for them, and uh, I'm sure Tyson will avail himself uh, for you as well if you would like to ask him some questions about what it means to uh, run a independent publishing house in Los Angeles, and uh, our uh, our last reader, um, I first uh, got to know, uh, wow, I don't know, it was probably uh, 2003 or so, um, I'd seen her do a one-woman show uh, she does a lot of uh, well. She does some great one woman shows. I shouldn't say a lot. That would mean you'd be we'd would be expecting you to come out with one like every month. But I can you do know, it. She can do it. Um, what was the one with the jail? What was the jail? It
6: was so impactful. You can't remember the name. Bust. Yeah.
2: Bust. Okay. That's, it was bust. And then uh, she did a woman trapped in a woman's body. And um, I was so taken uh, with her performance. Uh, it was at the Red Cat, I believe, that I saw her. I came back to Lori, uh, for whom I, I, I was working at the LA Weekly oh my god oh my god you got a Lauren Weedman
3: blah
2: like I just like kind of went crazy and um, she let me uh, she let me do a cover story on Lauren and we uh, we got together and had dinner and and I got to know her and she's not just Seriously, one of the most talented, funny, smart, incisive uh, uh, performers and writers that, that, that I've known. She's also uh, a, a wonderful woman and uh, a lot of fun and, and has become a good friend, I'm, I'm proud to say. Um, her current show is uh, Looking on HBO. You may have seen her in Big, right? Big. It was, it wasn't it Big? What's that?
6: Sure, with Tom Hanks? Yeah. Love to have been no, no. That. What was this show with,
2: with the guy with the hung, big dick? Oh, Hung, <laughs> Hung. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, hung, yeah. Um. <laughs> Why am I blushing? Um. So yeah, and uh, um, she's fantastic, and she's going to uh, read from uh, uh, her contribution, which was in the uh, issue number two of Slake, which if you can't find, you can find here. Ladies and gentlemen, Lauren Weedman.
6: what a nice intro thank you and also I don't it's hard when somebody else considers you a friend and you don't have the same feelings the other way that's okay (laughs) that's all right as long as you think I'm a friend yeah no I'm just like, oh yeah you're one of my closest friends um okay I'm gonna start my time because I don't want to go over 35 minutes I'm just kidding No, right um all right I forget what this... Okay, it doesn't matter what it's called. Don't worry about it. Just the whole book. It doesn't matter what this individual one. It's part of the bigger picture. My boyfriend David is organizing his sock drawer when I say to him, you know, it just hit me that if we end up staying together, you're going to go down in history as the love of my life. I lean back and I position myself on the bed. I fan out my skirt. I fluff my hair. So when he turns around and says it back to me, I'll look worthy. But he doesn't follow the script. Instead, he says, aww. Like you just saw a little baby bird with hearing aids. <laughs> We've been together four years. It shouldn't feel like I just took a gigantic risk and told him I had a crush on him. And we're at the point in the relationship where we are supposed to either say, you know, you're the love of my life or you're not the love of my life, but you helped me figure out that I don't like bossy women as much as I always thought. <laughs> I sit up in the bed and I smush my hair down. Lately, you know, David's been bizarrely excited about how his senses are starting to fail, and he likes to demonstrate this as if it's a magic trick. He's like, do you see this lemon? Do you see it? Okay, I'm bringing it to my nose, and nothing. I smell nothing. I wonder if his ears are going as well, and maybe he didn't hear me properly. That kind of blows my mind to think that you're the love of my life. I try again. I'm fairly certain he hears me because his hands stop balling up his socks, and he looks like he's just staring at the wall. Oh, my God. All I wanted was for him to simply cut my face in his hands and sob, you're the love of my life as well. I mean, I thought that would be a little nice midday perk. Uh, True, I'm probably fishing for a little reassurance since since this evening we're going to dinner with Jessica, an old friend of David's who I find completely petrifying, not only because she's a yoga healer person with whom David always makes time for long walks when he visits her hometown of Seattle, but because she did massage on Hannah, David's wife, before Hannah died of cancer nine years ago. I've never met Jessica. Jessica, but I did get a sense of the intimate nature of the relationship when I once overheard her on the phone telling David, I miss her hair, don't you? And for half a second, I thought, she's never even seen my hair. Then I realized that they weren't talking about me, and I knew that I'd never be invited on one of their walks. (laughs) Jessica is in town for an acupuncture conference, and we're going out for Indian food. And now that I've thrown the you're the love of my life ball to the kid with no arms and watched it bounce off his head, I'm not so hungry. The naan has barely hit the table before Jessica reaches over and gives David a little, sa- little massage he squeezes. Oh hey, she says, thank you for visiting me in my dream the other night. It's a really fun place to see you. The only tough part was waking up. <laughs> a piece of curried cauliflower pops out of my mouth. <laughs> Did she miss the bit where David introduced me as his girlfriend? Am I so far from the type of woman that she imagined David being with, so polar opposite of his wife that she's making a move on him right in front of me? And I'm sure David must be as irritated by her new age hooker talk as I am, but... (laughs) Wow, wow, that's so cool. He jumps right in. I wonder if your dream happened while I was meditating because I can go to some pretty deep places. Wouldn't that be wild? Ugh, ugh, here we go, here we go. David is the most stressed out meditator I've ever seen. The first time I saw him meditating, I thought he had a migraine. He was rocking back and forth to help the nausea pass. If he's in the middle of his daily 20 minutes of getting right with the universe, he hears me in the kitchen, oh, and and he hears me in the kitchen, he'll call out, Are you making popcorn? But he keeps his eyes closed and yells in a whisper voice, so it still counts as meditation. Plus, David always seems tenser after meditating. Like meditation is just uninterrupted time to go over whom he's angry with. His eyes pop open when he's done, and he'll be in the middle of a fight he started in his head. Yes, I did tell you I was selling that bookcase on eBay. I know I did. I'm I'm positive I told you that. Go back in, I always tell him. I don't think it took. But at the mere mention of meditation, Jessica scoots her chair closer to him and asks... How are you, David? I mean, how are you? (laughs) Usually, when I ask David how he is, he acts like it's a trick question, and he panics. I don't know, I don't know, what do you mean? uh, But when Jessica asks, his response is immediate and graphic. Well, actually, um, (laughs) I had a little blood in the stool. And uh, he practically (laughs) yells this while I'm trying to enjoy my chicken tiki masala. Uh, The blood in the stool, apparently, is like a mating call for yoga people. Because Jessica practically humps the table leg when she hears this, oh my gosh, oh David. David, the rectum is a warehouse for unresolved emotions. Oh my, like, like grief, and I have to break this up before she just jams her hands down his pants. Uh, and, and you know, it, it's fine, I tell you, you know, it's, he's fine. He got scraped by an angry peanut or something, I say. And it's true, He, he it, he's really fine. But for some reason, David has forgotten this when when she starts discussing how she'd love to do some work on him. It would be pretty intense, David, but if you trust me. When we get home, I can't shut up about it. So when do you get your taint massage? You excited about your taint massage? But David's having none of it. In fact, he asked me to bring it down a notch and explains that Jessica may have come off as a little loopy, but she is a wonderful person who was very important to him during the most intense period of his life. And not to mention the fact that she helped Hannah manage a lot of her pain. Uh, And Jessica is is a mock-free zone. Not being able to make jokes clears space in my head, which is unfortunate because I get hit by a huge realization I don't want to have. David can't tell me I'm the love of his life because... I'm not the love of his life. Of course I'm not, how stupid of me to even ask? Hannah, his wife for 13 years and mother of his only child is the love of his life. In fact, if the two of them ever discussed David moving on after she died, I would hope he told her, I will try to be happy for my sake and for our son Jack's sake, but you will always be the love of my life, no matter what. He probably assumed he'd be safe in his next relationship if he chose a partner who he'd be fine with not, who'd be fine with not being someone's ultimate. But since he couldn't get his first choice, an illegal immigrant, he settled for a self-hating (laughs) actress-writer. (laughs) Two weeks later we're on the bluff overlooking the ocean by our Santa Monica apartment. Tomorrow I leave to do a play in Pittsburgh for six weeks and I'm in a horrible mood. I go on tour a lot and this past year I've been to New Jersey, Idaho and Virginia, all the hot spots. Normally I enjoy missing David when I'm away but this time I decided that I'm going to break up with him as soon as I get back to Pittsburgh or as soon as I get to Pittsburgh or right before I come back. My therapist is right. For someone with huge fucked up family issues I've put myself in the worst possible situation. I'll never be a wife or a mother uh, because those titles have already been taken. I get it, but I need more. So I'm going to go do a show in a new town, be a big hit, feel like a big star, ride that confidence into the breakup. Plus, I'll use the money I earn to move out. Um, I hate to spoil the ending. That doesn't happen. Um, okay. <laughs> Jesus, the ocean bugs me. It's so endless, I say, trying to provoke David, who is distant and doesn't seem to be making any effort to have a last uh, romantic last day together. I shove some salami in my mouth and try to say something positive so he doesn't suspect what I'm planning. I guess there's one good thing about living here. That homeless guy keeps taking a share up our cactus, and now it started to bloom. <laughs> David's eyes are closed, and he says nothing to me, anyway. But in his head, I'm fairly—I'm fairly sure he's saying, "Don't worry, Hannah. She's almost gone." It's the first night in Pittsburgh, and I'm listening to a girl sobbing in her car. The only words I can make out are, no, and why? It's been going on for so long, I've started to sing along with her, the way you do with a car alarm that won't stop, no, why, no? There's also the occasional sound of throwing up and beer bottles being thrown. By the time it starts to get light out, I'm lying in bed thinking, forget this love of my life shit, I just want a warm body next to me. I want to stay in bed and eat smush power bars. But I think about how if David were here, he would get us out the door and looking for a little Pittsburgh joint to have breakfast. So I set out in his honor, but I forget the most important rule of exploring a new neighborhood. Stay away from the streets that are littered with beer cans, crusty crusty throw-up condoms, and dead baby birds. Well, I see two dead baby birds, which seem like one too many. It's the morning after on Carson Street is the city's biggest party stop. The only joint that's open is Schultz's Market. When I walk in, I miss the dead birds right away and the dried (laughs) throw-up. The market is what my friend Allison, but to call an ice cream and porno store. I don't see any porno, but I feel it.
0: <laughs>
6: and then, then I described bad porno. That doesn't seem necessary. Joe, that should have been edited, I think. Bad porno with the women who are missing a few fake nails and are slightly bruised on their cellulite where it's easy to bruise. That's so, it's so <laughs> unnecessary. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Later, the people at the theater tell me, oh gosh, don't buy anything from Schultz's. They make their own meat. <laughs> I have an early interview with a local newspaper to help promote the show. I'm excited because this means the press and the fame and the good vibes are going to start now, and I, but I can tell the reporter hates me immediately. Everything I say and I do somehow screams Los Angeles to her. When I tell her from Indi- I'm from Indiana, she says, mm, everybody in LA is from somewhere else, I get it. By the end of the interview, she has me so pegged as typical LA that I should just start rollerblading in my string bikini and ask for a Red Bull and a cigarette and some chopped celery so I can have an illusion of eating. (laughs) I've been in Pittsburgh almost five weeks now, and David and I talk on the phone daily, but we're drifting further apart. I haven't broken up with them yet because being in the city turned out to be tougher than I'd imagined. Performing eight times a week for audiences that are shuttled in for the convalescent homes hasn't been quite the diva-making machine that I'd hoped. (laughs) During my curtain calls, I start mouthing I'm sorry as I bow to a room full of confused looking old people. If we were to break up right now, I'd be taking the shortest, uh, I'd be taking the shortcut from deeply depressed to morbidly depressed. My only friend is a guy I pass three or four times a day on my way to the theater. I say friend, but I've never spoken to him and he never acknowledges me. Still, he's been there for me. He's a large older white gentleman who sits in front of his house blocking the sidewalk. Sort of the gatekeeper of the south side. He never has his shirt on and he watches an old TV that rests on his lap. The trucker cap he wears on, the tripper cap he wears has a mess Written on it in black marker. I've never gotten close enough to read the entire message, but I can usually make out the first and last words because they're all in caps women and licking.
1: <laughs>
6: He's never alone. In the lawn chair next to him is a large, stuffed Wiley Coyote. Today, Wiley Coyote is wearing a white, silky, brand new bra. I'm guessing a C cup. When I try to use the gatekeeper as uh, when I try to use the gatekeeper as an icebreaker with the theater people, they they act like it's the craziest thing they've ever heard and say only somebody from L. A. would notice a person like him. I'm like, have you guys visited your own city? At least the guy who runs the lights who said um, who said all of one sentence to me for the entire run of the show doesn't just brush me off when I mention the gatekeeper. You know he's fucking Wally coyote for sure. He says, and then he goes outside to smoke. I decided to break up with those. Uh, okay, I'm almost done. Okay. I decided to break up with David on closing night. The show is sold out. Most of, the ti- most of the tickets were bought by one woman bringing a large group. I'm, hopi- I'm hoping she's one of the wealthy Pittsburgh patrons of the arts I've been hearing so much about. Perhaps she's looking to produce a show in New York. Blah, 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 blah. The patron of the arts turns out to be a 24 year old who brings 12 of her closest drinking buddies for a bachelorette party. Apparently, she thought the show Bust would be a madcap comedy about boobs. It's actually about my experience volunteering with women in the LA County Jail. The Bachelorettes have been out drinking since 11 a.m. They sit in the middle of the theater and spin their lit up whips and yell, woohoo, whenever they think the show's gotten even remotely sexual. Like when a woman who's been arrested for prostitution reveals that she's been molested, woohoo! and twirling whips light up in the audience when the prostitute character gets released from jail I hear one of them drunkenly whisper this isn't like ha ha funny I have to pee they all click their way out on high heels and take a group of men from the front row with them in the dressing room after the show the house manager apologizes for letting the drunk women in you know when I saw that one girl sucking on that penis straw I thought uh oh my phone rings it's David And then that's it. it. Thank you. That's it. Oh, I know. What happens?
1: Thank you. Okay, so maybe we can get our authors up here for a quick (laughs) Q&A. Did he go?
6: I guess uh, he should have to sit up here. I think. Thanks, that, Luke, for uh,
2: jumping in there. Thank you, Luke Davies. Here for Luke. Luke Davies, John Albert, Jonathan Goldman. <laughs> 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 he's got a question. and what are you doing
0: here? <laughs> no, I was just captivated in a. In a book on sale on cocktail napkin origami. Let's
2: bring that up front.
0: That up. <laughs> Things I never knew. Oh, uh, when you wrote that article about the uh, uh, L.A. rise, where were you living at? Um, I was living near Third and Vermont. It was an interesting apartment, too. Uh, that that. That, that piece was written, obviously, you know, 22 years ago. But um, um, two editors-in-chief of the LA Weekly lived there. Uh, two Pulitzer Prize winners. Um, no, three editors of the Weekly, right? No, I mean, anyway, it, it was a place that writers went in and out of for a while. It's, it's fine. Have you been back in the
6: area and had
2: a chain of the
0: well, it's you know I've been I've been through it a lot and I've you know written about things on that block, but it's always different when you live in a place and and you experience the rhythms and the light and the you know the sound of the people going by than you do um, you know when when you're just passing
6: through. How did you end? <laughs> end with a David? Well I just signed divorce papers yesterday. <laughs> That's it. Oh, thank you so much. It's an amazing support group. <laughs> uh, well no in that story is that we end up, you know, his son crashes my car and then we end up being a family within the court system for a while to help his son get out of juvenile to detention. So yeah, it gets really it's it gets a bit more She
2: just read the intro. Wow.
6: Yeah. Well was it was a novella, I think. It is, I know it feels novella like, doesn't it? You're like, it must be much longer than if all those things happen. I just squish them in really quick at the end because of word count and all. Um, no, they're all short stories. They're all essays, right? So should you consider them? or whatever. Short, uh, short yeah. story. Yeah. yeah. Big fonted. I like the font in this edition, too. Yeah. When was that piece written?
4: When, you read it, you
6: read it. when was the first Slake? When did that come out?
2: Uh, that was in the second
6: one. Oh, this was in the second one? Yeah. Um, Sorry. When was that? I
2: tried to get you for the first one but you weren't answering your phone then. Yeah, yeah. We weren't of... good friends yet.
6: No, I didn't get it. Friends. You weren't as complimenting <laughs> as you are now. Yeah. So I really <laughs> stepped up. It. Oh. Uh, that
2: was in the like fall of two thousand and ten or the maybe January two thousand
6: eleven. So, yeah. Oh my god, that's all? Yeah. I'm already getting divorced. Ugh, my life. Off <laughs> <laughs> only oh, there was a slake six. Uh, <laughs>
2: about
5: the wrecking crew um, Who optioned it? Who wrote the screenplay? I didn't know if Bill was in it. And, um, he, oh, he optioned it. And then he packaged it. And he's the second person to have died that's optioned it.
6: You are kidding me. <laughs> oh, my God.
5: I don't take that personally. but <laughs> <laughs> I think it's That's not,
6: intense, though. Yeah. So who was the first person?
5: person? Uh, it was um, Ted Demi. Ted Deming. Yeah, he optioned it and then went, did a bunch of coke and played basketball and had a heart attack. Um, yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I mean, um, Phil Hoffman, I liked a lot. So I mean, it was sad beyond my small needs, you know. So, anyways, it'll get optioned again. It's been optioned. This that was like the seventh time. So, um, who knows? You know. But that was sad.
4: Yeah. Johnny, have any intention to write
5: Occasionally, but that opens up a bigger discussion, which you you know we can talk to Joe, Laurie, and Tyson about. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's um, if one has to earn a living, writing a book is is a tough way to go these days. Yeah. So I mean, I do write for a living, but writing a book is probably the hardest thing to do. You know, Uh, so. Maybe, you know.
2: Did you have a question?
6: Yeah, um, a lot of um, music history occurred in LA, and I
1: think it's really interesting.
5: You know, I don't know. I mean, I was, <clears throat> I was part of the punk scene, which, you know, I guess people couldn't play instruments. But um, I don't really look at it, the importance of that as anything musical. I mean, it was, it was an aesthetic movement, and it was fun. I mean, I'm very much not sentimental towards any of that. I mean, um, it's hard. I mean, I, there are a lot of people that write about that time, and. Um, my initial impression is like it's not that important, you know, for the punk scene. It was important when I was 15 or 16, but it it's, uh, has no relevance in my life now. Um, and, you know, in terms of Van Halen, they had a huge impact musically, but I I don't know uh, how important they are in my life either. You know, I mean, I, I think it's important to keep moving on, and I'm su- sure everything influenced one another, but... um. It's not I don't listen to a lot of that stuff now. I mean you you have a lot of I mean you know, what did your take on that stuff? Uh, yeah, I
0: was, I was in bands my own my under club and I actually my band played with your band an
5: awful lot. Yeah, probably after I was in it, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh but in in the like early eighties of the yeah. Club. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean uh, you, but I mean punk is sort of as a intellectual movement, I think, at LA was huge. I mean, almost anything who's done anything interesting, true, uh, that that's our age in the last, you know, twenty five, thirty years. You know, started out at least peripherally involved with the punk rock scene.
5: Yeah, at least hanging outside the club, getting drunk. You know, yeah, right.
0: Um, it, and obviously, but the, you know, there's been some like tremendous music that's come out of LA. Most of which was. I I don't know. I mean, I I I feel happy to have like seen as many like Jane's Addiction shows as I have, or or watching or watching the LA hip hop scene grow up. Yeah, which obviously had absolutely nothing to do with punk.
5: I mean, I would defend uh, L. A. as a culturally, but especially musically, against almost any city. I mean, I think it gets sort of dismissed as, you know. Like, when you're reading your piece and they're talking about their image of L.A., I always think, well, the only people that rollerblade on Venice are people from Pittsburgh, you know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so,
5: like, none of my friends do that, so, you know, I mean, I think... It's I, so
6: fun, though, you should do it. I, well,
5: you know the joke oh. about rollerblade.
6: <laughs> no, I don't know the joke about rollerblade. I'm not
5: telling Is it different? here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you know, I think you know, especially for those of us who grew up in L.A. I mean, that the, that time was very influential and important. So, um, yeah. I mean, the, the, I think in a, in a big way, the importance
0: of punk rock was as sort of a, a lens. I mean, people coming into the scene came from everywhere. You yeah. know, I mean, you know, from art school, and they were surfers, and they were you know, and they were jocks, and they were you know, intellectuals and poets, and, and, and then they got crammed through the small lens of the three or four shows, three or four clubs in LA that played the interesting music and the hundred drunks would go every night, yeah. and you'd want to appeal to them, and then they come out on the other side of the lens, and there are all kinds of different things, but there's, you know, that one beautiful moment in between where everybody's sort of the same.
5: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of people doing vital stuff, where, whether it's in film or literature, or who are of that scene. I mean, yeah. it was sort of like, if you were a creative person, you migrated into those little places. So um, I think it's interesting in that way. I just don't, I mean, I have a thing with like my friends always calling up, putting the band back together. I'm like, are you serious? Like, you know, how relevant is your teen anger? Like, at, at like middle age, <laughs> but, um, but you know, whatever. Makes them happy, so. And it's, you know,
0: it's-
5: kind of nice going to
0: urinal shows (laughs) 35 years after going to urinal shows (laughs) but
5: they don't have singing do they
3: yeah
0: they do oh they do
5: okay i haven't
3: given up on slake (laughs) and it was such an amazing endeavor and it's like we dropped a bomb on you and i hope that there's some more and what i'd like to ask if you don't think you don't have to go too far back what was it like to be published in slake what was the experience like for you Life-changing.
0: Each, each
6: person. Each one. I was, I thought the whole uh, publication was so beautiful. And I thought it, for me, it classed me up tremendously. Um, you know, because I I get so stuck in these, um, I don't know, I was like in an anthology about like the best non-required reading, that's like Dave Eggers thing, which was great, obviously. Um, but I can tend to be more like, uh, more comedy stuff or I don't get to like get further into storytelling as much as I'd like to. So for me it was great to be uh, with so many writers that I felt were actual writers. (laughs) And also, and the the visual, the the graphics in it were so beautiful. So I thought this was good, and I actually thought it was gonna be around for a little bit longer than it was. I was surprised that it, um, and when I came to the readings, I was so happy that I was, like, like being up here like, oh yes, I as well, I feel like the punk scene of like, I have nothing, I don't know anything. But it's like, but I love hearing about it, you know? So to me, it was, I've, I've loved it. I love culturally, like, and I thought it was such a great pairing up of, you know, taking the best of the LA Weekly, moving on, and doing that kind of stuff, you know? But that's it was. It didn't change my life or anything, but you no, know, I mean, yes, it did, sorry, uh, yeah. Got a book deal out of one of the stuff, actually, yeah. Oh God, what obnoxious thing not to remember. So yeah, that's that's my speech.
5: Um, I don't know. For me, I mean, I've been working and writing stories at the LA Weekly, and and I really enjoyed both Joe and Laurie's editorial input, um, and and the idea that you could sort of like every story that I wrote for Slake was just a conversation that we had, and then Joe would call up and say like, remember we were talking about that? Why don't you write that as a story? So you rarely get that freedom. I mean, when you're working for a magazine sometimes you can, you know, take your personal interest and put it in there, but this was like completely whatever I was thinking about. And so that's that's rare. Even in a lot of anthologies that I've written for, they set up like a theme and you have to sort of match it to it. And then you try and go off of it a lot. But this was like completely free. And, um, you know, I thought it was a very noble, beautiful, idealized effort, you know, that perhaps was destined to like go up and smoke but i think that we i was better for it i think i don't know i mean i feel bad joe <laughs> like cuz i felt like you destroy it, your
3: life joe no. Mm-hmm. no
5: but i mean i he did there was that was literally true he was you know, like homeless, i place. i sold yeah, my <laughs> house what should i do like nobody would say like put out a literary anthology but mm-hmm. um, but i think that it, it was a really noble thing so i'm i'm happy to have been part of it and I'm
0: probably the wrong person to ask about this. Because when, uh, when Slake started, it was as if like, um, Lori had adopted uh, another child without <laughs> asking me. <laughs> to which she uh, proceeded to give 20 hours a day of care, seven days a week. And So writing for, writing for Slake was the end of a process that basically went, have you written the piece yet? How about the piece? You're going to turn to the piece today, right? Um, how about the piece? No, 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 you you, you have to write the piece. No, but but, but what about the piece? Write the damn piece. And you can imagine this going on for three weeks, and then I guess what sl- Publishing in Slick meant was that I didn't have to hear about it until the next issue. <laughs> so it
2: wasn't a planned pregnancy, <laughs>
0: <laughs> No, no. Yeah.
2: It was a surprise. the Was that the one where you almost choked to
0: death on the live prawn head? Oh, no, that was another prawn story. looking <laughs> at you, right? Yeah, it, it was looking. I mean, I, I did some version of it for This American Life a few years ago. For some reason, they used to play it every year on Thanksgiving. Like, <laughs> I guess because the story, for some reason, began with the chicken. It's hard to get from a chicken to a prawn, but... I, Ira is a very good editor. What's your take on the residential Market after a
4: um, long period? And I
1: guess all the these things you kind
0: of represent as <coughs> change in L.A. Well, it seems like I've spent my entire life there, right? And it's, and the woman who owns it, uh, Adele Yellen, who's been a very good custodian of it for really, since the late 80s, I think, uh, decided that since downtown is not what it was in 1988, that she was going to update the market. And it became interesting. It's like, oh, there's a place where I could go, where you can go to have chicken rice. Oh, there's, there's a cheese counter. And every, oh, instead of like, Um, Looking at this grizzly meat, there's a place that sells, uh, you know, fairy dust roasts that have been literally raised on uh, flowery grass in the shadow of Mount Shasta. (laughs) 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 That happened to sell for $27 a pound. But it's, and it was, oh, you can finally get great coffee. And then I think the point where I started to get alarmed was when the guy who had been selling really truly awful ice cream for the last 20 years uh, was pushed out for a stand selling kombucha and it was clear that the market was for different people I mean changes with every generation of the average the average income downtown. Family income downtown is like well over six figures and it's just it's different from when you know everyone we knew down there was living gorky uh, yeah and, and living in lofts with, with pigeons flying through the windows um it's, it's neither good nor bad it just kind of is but the coffee's really good. good
5: yeah <laughs> my opinion on it is just like a food court to me, no, I mean, i not interested, I guess. Mm-hmm. Are you
6: going to get married yet? Can I talk about my weight, maybe, first? Okay. Um, uh, no, I don't think so, no. No. Why, do you have somebody in mind? Let's <laughs> <laughs> see a picture. You
0: signed no. up for Tinder yet?
6: No. It's oh, me. yeah, Tinder. Yeah, in fact, all I'm doing is swiping on everybody right now. Like, swipe, yes, no. Yes, no. Yeah, no
0: no no. No, no. no, no, no. You don't
6: know Tinder? This baby thing's really got in the way of your progress. Up there. It's like, yeah, it's a dating thing. It's like, a, yeah, for straight folks. But it's not like grinder where there's like somebody in the bushes waiting for you. It's getting there. Like it's it's a, maybe. I mean, when I, my experience is not like that. Like, not. It's much classier than that. Clearly.
2: Anybody have any questions for Tyson? He's, uh back there and he's getting, oh. getting loose with his own whiskey. Hold on a 2nd uh. <laughs> around. Tyson, what is it like? Well, you know, it's an amazing experience to be able to work with
6: these people uh, every day and feel like I have
2: to do a real job. So uh, it's a real honor.
0: And uh, you know, I'm still eating. So. <laughs> so what are your thoughts about Amazon?
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, I don't know how to get started on that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I'm pretty I hope
2: you have okay. well, Thank you guys for coming out and thanks Tyson. Woo! Thank you, Skyline. <laughs> and thanks Rick for stepping up.